weekly study for us of looking at different words that are used in the Bible. Uh, some of these have hopefully been encouraging to you as maybe you thought a little bit about the usage. I know uh, many of us are not necessarily scholars or care that much about the original language, but there is some encouragement that can be taken as we think about the way the different words are used or just to remind ourselves about some of the, the things, the way that the Bible uses these words and especially sometimes with the language it carries with it maybe something that we've never thought about before and so we've looked at several different things uh, several different uh, groups of words this study groups them together uh, one of those was Christian characteristics we talked about grace and and love and hope and some of those things uh, we've also talked more recently about last things and that's been a little different we talked about heaven and we talked about hell and I said hope a minute ago but actually hope was grouped into those last things that last things category but beginning this month we're going to take a look at relationships and if I've heard it said once here, I've heard it said a hundred times or more, and it's not necessarily a bad thing that it's said that many times, but through different classes, different teachers here, we have emphasized that it's all about relationships, and that is certainly true. That is certainly something that is comforting to us. Uh, you know, the worship of God is important, even as we did this morning, and Gabe led us in a, such a great fashion as he always does, and many of our men do, thinking about the Lord's Supper communing together and thinking about his death is a wonderful thing that's part of it but we also enjoy the time that we share in laughter in particular and in fellowship here uh, at the building around services but even beyond that we enjoy time where we can comfort one another where we can give encouragement to one another think about the funerals that we have faced and had here as a congregation that's something that is bearable those things are bearable because of the relationships that we have we're able to turn to one another. So over the course of the next six months, we're going to look at several words. It'll co cover us through the rest of this year, and God be willing, into the first quarter of next year. But we're going to talk about mothers tonight, if you have your outline in front of you. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about the idea of Christians, elders, deacons, and then to bookend this particular section. We start with mothers, we'll end with fathers. As I've shared with you, this is a study guide. There are two books that go along with this. It's meant to be a weekly study, but we just take one word a month, so we're not necessarily tied in to this for a whole year. We can certainly look at other lessons as we go throughout the year. So it would be week 20 if you do it as a weekly study, but we're up to month 20 as we have used it here. When we think about the different words that are used in the Bible, the Latin is something that we don't usually talk about because, of course, the Latin doesn't have as much to do with the original languages that the Bible is written in. But we think about in Latin, the word is, is mater. And that's important because we think of the phrase, this is where we get our alma mater from. The idea of alma mater being uh, fostering or kindly mother. You know, the word mother is among the first words that are learned, right? That we learn, whether it's, it's ma or pa or mother or father or something along those lines. The Dictionary of Word Origins summarizes the different theories that linguists use as to the various origin of the word mother in this way. This is the quotation from the Dictionary of Word Origins. It says it was probably based on the syllable ma, M-A, suggested by the burbling sound of a suckling baby, which also lies behind the English mama or uh, m even the word mammal. And so you go to Latin and you think about it, if, if you study language at all, this idea of mater, alma mater, or fostering, or kindly mother. 
And then we even think about the Hebrew. That's going to be a little more important to us. The Hebrew is im or aim, again, depending on the, the way that you pronounce it. But when we think about the Old Testament and that use of the Hebrew word, the term mother in the Hebrew language is used some 168 times, and it's used both literally and symbolically. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at several passages together, as we usually do to, to emphasize these. The first one is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 20. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 20. There we've already read about the, the creation, of course, of the world, of all the things in it, of man and of woman. There's also in chapter 3 the, the temptation and the fall of man. And in verse number 20, it says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We might throw that into the figurative or symbolic category. Eve is, I guess, in a sense, the mother of all living, but of course she's not the actual physical mother of every person that's going to come after her. So that is, in a sense, a, a symbolic way that it is used. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 16. Genesis 17 and verse number 16. God, of course, speaking to Abraham about Sarah, or Sarai, his wife, beginning in verse number 15, changes her name. Sarah shall be her name. He says in verse 16, I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of all nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. In verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And so we see this concept, of course, in the literal sense of mother. She will bear a child, be a mother. But then again, in verse number 16, shall be a mother of nations. In a symbolic sense, it's used. Not that uh, she is physically going to birth that many children, but yes, symbolically she will. And then in Genesis chapter 28 and verse number 5, Genesis chapter 28 and verse number 5, the Bible records for us, So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Well, let's not make it too difficult here. That, that would be a literal sense. That's a mother right there. But it's the word that is used here, and it's used in both senses, again, both uh, literally and symbolically all throughout the Old Testament. One other thing that we would mention as we think about the Old Testament, we preached a lesson several months ago now with the idea about slavery. Many of you were here for that. But ultimately what we said was that many people think one thing about slavery and they think that the Bible says something similar, and they've never actually gone and done the study and tried to marry the two together, the two ideas together, and sometimes they're surprised to find out that it's something different. Well, I bet you that you would know many people. I'd be willing to say you know many people who think it's generally assumed by many people in the world that the Old Testament, probably the Bible in general, but especially in the Old Testament, that women were degraded, that women were property, almost like back to the idea of the slavery lesson, but they were property to be traded, that they held no value, they were just a woman, and that was it. They're degraded in a sense. And, you know, that's probably in a large measure based on their mistreatment by the mistreatment of women by some of the world's major religions today. 
And so people take a look at the Bible, and really they don't take a look, I guess I shouldn't say that, but they think they know what it says or what they've heard, and they say, well, that Old Testament, it's full of slavery, and it's full of just putting women down and saying that they're nothing, or maybe they're just uh, property, but that is certainly not the case, and we're going to notice that to be so from a few passages we want to look at together. I don't know if you're still in Genesis 28 there, maybe you didn't turn away, but Genesis chapter 28 and verse number 7 talking about Esau of course verse 6 Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and that as he blessed him he gave him a charge saying you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan and that Jacob had obeyed his father and who did he obey his father and his mother he obeyed his father and his mother so the mother must have held some place of respect because she was obeyed just like the father is mentioned there let's look at Leviticus chapter 19 Leviticus chapter 19, and we're going to look at chapter 20 in just a moment. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 3. The giving of the laws, the many laws that they were to follow. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 3. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord your God am holy. Every one of you shall revere who? His mother and his father. And keep my Sabbaths, I am the Lord your God. So it's not just the mention of the father. It's not just to ignore the mother. But God's going to say here and record, it be recorded for us to obey and revere your mother and your father. Now, depending on the version that you're looking at there, you may see the word, I'm going to guess the King James, but you may see the word fear. Some of you fear your mothers, and that's probably a good thing for many people, right? Most of us might agree that's the problem with the world today, is not too many people fear their parents, but certainly their mother as well. But the idea, if you see the word fear there, carries with it more the idea of reverence. But notice Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 9. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 9. For everyone who curses his father or, here it is again, or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. A capital crime for cursing your parents. And let's say it again, parents, not just father, but also mother. So I don't think it's true that women are just degraded, that they're just property, they hold no value but they are highly regarded. One more passage. Let's look at Genesis chapter 24. Go back with me again to the book of Genesis, this time chapter 24. And this is a a different note here, but but the the law places children under obligation of honoring both father and mother. Even as we go to Exodus chapter 20, we don't turn there, but just to make note of that. When we come to Genesis chapter 24, we notice first of all in verse number 28, and we're speaking of Rebekah, and we're speaking of Laban, and we're speaking of Isaac here. Genesis 24, beginning in verse number 28. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. We go all the way down to verse number 50 of Genesis 24. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. Verse 53, Then the servant brought out jewelry or silver of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. 
And even then, down in verse 55, But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. There seems to be equal voice here. In Rebecca's marriage, her mother seems to have had an equal voice with her father and Laban, her brother. So it's not just degradation. It's not just putting down. But it seems to be that there is the idea of highly regarded. And I think people get that confused sometimes. But it's important to note that, especially about the Old Testament. When we go forward to the New Testament, we think about the Greek. And we see the Greek word is metar or mater. And you see the word, have you ever used the word before, metropolis? Metropolis is mother city. And so that is the word that is used in the Greek. And if you have your outline in front of you there, we notice that in the New Testament, it is used about 90 different times. And so let's look at a couple of those, mainly from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, first of all. And what we're going to notice here is that it is used similar to the Old Testament in that it is both literal and even figurative or symbolic sometimes. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Matar, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That's very literal. That's Jesus' mother, Mary, right there. We go over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 48. Actually, 48 through 50, we might say, if you're making notes. Matthew 12, 48 through 50. But Jesus' mother and his brothers sinned for him in this section. And he answered and said to the one who told him this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards, towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wait a minute. He pointed at the disciples and said, they're his mother. That's not meant to be literal, but that's meant to be symbolic or figurative here, certainly as Jesus is using that. One other, even from Paul, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 26. Paul encouraging those brethren there says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of of us all. He's not talking about the city. The city's not the mother. Speaking of the church here, but in a figurative sense, using the phrase or the idea of mother. Jerusalem is the mother of us all. So there is symbolic use of the word as well in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, let's look at Isaiah chapter 66. Because there's a few notes that we want to make here as we begin uh, to make some application and even conclude this lesson. When we think about Isaiah chapter 66 and verse number 13, we would make note, and it's in your outline there in front of you if you have it, but the greatest comfort imaginable is the comfort that a mother gives her son. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse number 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When God, in his infinite wisdom, all-knowing, all-powerful God, by inspiration, is giving us his word to know and to live by. He's going to refer to the idea of a mother and her son. And not only that from Isaiah chapter 66, but one other thing that was not mentioned in the study, but that came to my mind, was Matthew chapter 23 
Matthew chapter 23, 37 through 39. Do you recall the passage there where Jesus is giving woe? He's giving caution to the scribes and the Pharisees. You recall the first part of chapter 23 where he calls them whitewashed tombs. And he's sort of tearing them down for who they are and the the fake people that they are. The hypocrites, he says several times. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. But in verse 37, even Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That came into my mind because I think even Jesus here is trying to to give them an example. He's trying to, to give them something that would connect, that they could understand. And what does he choose? Still the idea of a mother, in a sense, comforting, collecting, protecting, guarding her children. That's what comes to mind, and it is the greatest comfort that we can imagine. And yes, even God's word, excuse me, is going to use that to encourage us. A couple of applications of lessons from the devotional guide that goes along with this. The first one is going to deal with Hannah's heart. And if you have your Bible and you're following along, that, of course, is 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. The idea of Hannah's heart and Hannah's heart as it deals with Samuel. She named him Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 20. Because I have asked for him from the Lord. We recall Hannah's fervent prayer that it had been heard by God and answered with a miraculous and resounding yes. Yes, you can have this son. This woman who had not been able to conceive, though she desperately wanted a child, now has her little boy. But Hannah's heart for God does not grow cold with the granting of this petition. Think about it for a moment. She had said that the boy would be dedicated to the work of God. Verse number 11 of 1 Samuel. And she would see to that. And now it's time for her to follow up on that vow. She has a choice to make. Does she go with it or does she go against it? How could she give up this child even at a young age? And even as we talked this morning about Ataliah and her grandchildren, all right, you mothers understand better than anyone, even us men as, yes, parents, they are our children as well, but you mothers understand how hard this must have been, but she had made a vow. She weans the baby boy and keeps her vow. And in verse number 24, she takes him to the service of the priest Eli, even when the child was young, as verse number 24 uh, points out for us. This godly woman, though, still has the heart of a mother. In chapter 2 and verse number 19, it is shared with us that she would bring Samuel a little robe that she had made every year. But more precious is the heart of this woman. While she obviously loves this boy, her heart is fully devoted to God, first and foremost. That's a hard lesson It's a hard lesson to follow in. We love our family. We love our children. We put them above many things in our life sometimes, even our own health and our own place in life. But she realizes that she must keep God first. She keeps a vow that many others would have probably gone back on. Her prayer upon the birth of Samuel is covered with praise. Of course, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, her prayer there that she prays. And when she brings the robes to Samuel, 
In chapter 2 and verse 19, it is at that time that she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, service to God. You see, the example that Hannah sets before us is not one of just getting some kind of wish granted. You know, that's what many people would look at it and they'd say, well, she prayed and she got her wish. God granted her her wish. God is not a genie in a bottle that we make some kind of wish Instead, Hannah's example is one of full devotion to the Lord through struggle and joy. Her heart is centered on God, no matter her circumstances. That is the kind of heart that we must be after. He will give us what is best not only in this life, but yes, also for the eternal life to come. And when we see Hannah's heart here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we can realize that the heart of a mother is great. It is important, it's beautiful to behold, but the heart of a mother, I don't know if it's worthless, but it becomes a lot less when that mother forsakes God for any number of reasons, as mothers sometimes do, and we must do our best to follow in this example, all of us, not just mothers, but certainly mothers as we think about the example that Hannah gives to us here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Turn with me also to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. And verses 12 through 14 that we're going to look at in just a moment. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And let's notice together, as you finish your notes there, a mother's greatest joy. A mother's greatest joy. Have you ever wondered what Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have thought as she watched her other sons reject their brother? Have you ever considered that before? Because I know that we consider the birth, right? Or, you know, we we consider the things that happen there in Matthew. We consider the things that are told to us in Luke. We think about Jesus as a child. We also usually go forward and think about Jesus on the cross, watching your child hang there in anguish and in agony, giving his life. But have you ever wondered what what Mary thought as she watched her other sons reject their brother. In John chapter 7 and verses 1 through 5, they go so far, at least in this occasion, as to try to set him up. In Matthew chapter 7, they don't believe him. That is true. We know that to be the case from John 7 verse 5. Even his brothers did not believe him. But do you remember in the first part of that chapter, John 7, that it says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And so his brothers go to him in verse number three, and they say, depart from here and go into Judea. We don't get a lot of context there in the full, but it seems like maybe they're even setting him up. And it tells us then again in verse number five that they did not believe in him. But something changes all that. When Jesus overcomes death and leaves the tomb empty, it changes many people's hearts and minds. And while we do not have a record in the gospel accounts of Jesus appearing to his brothers, you may recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 7 that Paul states that Jesus appeared to James even before he appeared to all the apostles. So we don't necessarily get it in the gospel record, but we do get it we do get this mention of him appearing in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 7. The shocking knowledge that Jesus has overcome death, that he's no longer in the tomb, leads his brothers 
to believing in him. And after he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, we are told that the believers are waiting in the upper room in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. We have all the apostles listed as being present, but have you ever noticed that the list ends in verse number 14 by telling us that Mary the mother of Jesus is there as are his brothers. Now we're only left to kind of think up in our own minds or sort of conjecture how much time Mary had spent thinking about and praying for this moment. The moment when her other sons understand Jesus and they put all of this together to the level of having faith in him. We might say, to make our last point here, for a Christian mother, there can be no greater joy than to know that her children are walking in faith in Christ. Some mothers grieve because their children are not walking in faith. This is not meant to discourage them or anyone who might be in that case at this time listening to this lesson. Instead, it's meant to cause us all to think about those who have helped us grow in our faith. When we are considering living apart from our faith, may our minds go back to them, to those people who have helped us and used their training to help us make wise and godly decisions. So as we think about this particular point, is there someone? I'd be willing to say that for most of us, there is at least probably one woman involved, whether it's our mother or our grandmother, whether it's a Bible class teacher who became very important to us as we were young children. Most of us have a, a woman, a mother who is important to us, maybe in our walk of faith. Maybe we need to make mention of that. Maybe we need to give thanks for that. Maybe we need to write that down and realize that our greatest joy should be in walking in faith in those who have helped us and that we strive to help others get there, especially our children. It was mentioned at least twice, I think, this morning in our, in our service or in our prayers about the young children being up here, being a part of the congregation here and us as a congregation trying to encourage them. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That should be something that we should all say, not just our mothers. And so may we strive, <clears throat> excuse me, may, may we strive from this point forward to make note of that, to think about that, to give thanks for that. I would even challenge you to go so far as maybe take a moment to write that person a card, to send them a note, to make a phone call before it's too late, before something happens either to them or to us, or something happens, the Lord were to return, we don't know. But we should give thanks for our mothers, for the place that they hold in our lives. And even if it's not a mother in particular in your occasion, on your particular occasion, then maybe it's some other great godly woman who helped you. You know, we don't have time tonight in our lesson to get through all the women and mothers that are mentioned in the Bible. But I saw one writer who was mentioning the fact that there are mothers mentioned, right? There are grandmothers who are mentioned. There are other family members who are mentioned throughout the Bible as being women who are guiding examples, great lights to those people, those great men and great women that we read about in the Bible. Maybe we be reminded of that even this evening as we think about this particular lesson. Maybe tonight you're here as we conclude this lesson and you need to become a child of God. No greater joy than any of us would have even as we think about our last point there, then to help you do that, then to see you become a child of God, be added to the church by the Lord so that you can begin to live faithfully. We'll be singing for that purpose in just a moment to encourage you. Or maybe you've done that, but you've wandered away. 
Maybe you've struggled in life. Maybe it's because of family. You know, as we talk about mothers tonight and we'll think about fathers, God be willing, in a few months from now, sometimes our earthly families are not great examples to us. And yet sometimes we're the ones who are not perfect examples. We're not the best we should be. We're thankful for this opportunity that presents itself, that we can sing a song of encouragement, that you can either become a Christian tonight or come back to him, or maybe you need the prayers of this church to encourage you along, excuse me, <clears throat> along the way as you go through this time, as you go through these struggles that we face here in this life. We're thankful for the body assembled here, and we're thankful for this opportunity. And you can come forward now as we stand together and as we sing.